When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome back to The Paddock and the Pavilion with me, your host, Stephen Wallace, for the second part of our podcast with cricket writer Mike Thompson, who has just written The Last Corinthian about the cricketing life of MJK Smith. After covering his early cricket career in part one, today's episode covers MJK Smith's test career, which began in 1958. Capture more cricket in nostalgia as Mike reveals some fascinating stories about MJK's test career, especially his successful times touring as the England captain in India, South Africa and Australia. MJK captained England in 25 of his 50 test matches. Find out the respect held for Mike by both teammates and opponents in this relaxing look back at cricket during the 1950s, 60s and 70s. Welcome back, Mike, for part two of MJK Smith, The Last Corinthian. Mike made his test debut at Edgbaston in 1958 against New Zealand and he opened the batting. He didn't do very well, actually. He was out for single-figure scores in both innings, I think. They persisted with him, though, and uh, he got a second chance. I think he made, in the second test, he made about, he made a 50, I think. And in, and he played in the third test and uh, didn't do very well. And then was 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 dropped by England for, for some time. He didn't, uh, it wasn't until his incredible year in 1959 when he got uh, over 3,000 runs in the season. 3,245, 3, in fact. The first person who'd got more than 3,000 for 10 years. The last person was Ten Len Hutton in 1949. Um, he couldn't be kept out of the side any longer, the England side any longer after after that uh, phenomenal year. But um, so, but but his debut was in '58. But he he wasn't a highly successful debut. And in fact, um, John Arlott, I think it was John Arlott, said, you know, he. One of his innings, he said, was was really joyless. He said he didn't look like the same player who'd scored all those runs at Oxford. But for a bit of context and listeners, who who was playing for England at the time in '58? Well, it would have been people like Peter Richardson, I would imagine, Trevor Bailey, 
people like that. Bailey was tried as an opener on several occasions. Um, Colin Cowdery. Peter Richardson was a was the main opener, but they were trying to find somebody who could partner him, and they, they experimented with quite a few people. I think Mike was Mike had be, been asked to play as an opener, which didn't really suit him. But he said, "If he said if the selectors ask you to do that, then you do it." Mike's normal position was number four, and that was his preferred position. But he had opened quite a few times at Oxford. But um, they, the selectors asked him if he would open, and uh, it didn't really work out well for him in 58. What, what type of player was Mike? I know he, f- he favoured the leg side. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, yeah, I think you could say that again. Um, according to Demis Amis, you know, that's what he'll be remembered for, the, 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 the person who invented the lap shot to take a ball from anywhere off the stumps or outside the off stump and play it into gaps on the leg side. I mean, John John Jameson told me a story about Mike when they were playing Lancashire. And uh, I think it was David Hughes was, was, was bowling for Lancashire, who was, I think, a left-arm spinner. And um, he was quite young, David was, and I think it might have been his debut or very early on in his career. And he, he, the first ball he bowled to Mike in the over was pitched outside off stump and spun, and, and, and spun away further to the off. Mike went across and hit it for four. David David Hughes bowled, then, bowled the next one a bit wider. Mike did the same thing and hit it to a different position on the leg side again for four. And he did that for the first five balls of the over. He hit the first five and David Hughes was pitching them wider and wider each time. But Mike still managed to get them over onto the leg side for boundaries. And in the end, in exasperation, he turned, I think David Lloyd was the Lancashire captain that day. He turned to David Lloyd and he said, where do, where do I bowl at him? And David Lloyd said, why don't you try a straight one? And he bowled a straight one. John, John Jameson said he bowled him a straight one and Mike blocked it. <laughs> yeah. But he I mean, Boycott said to me, Jeff Boycott sent me an email last week, actually. Um, I'd actually, I suppose, I wasn't fishing for com- compliments, but I'd sent him a copy of the book because to thank him for his contribution to it. And uh, I sent him an email asking him if he'd read the book and what he thought of it. And he sent me a very complimentary email back saying he'd really enjoyed it particularly the first two thirds for some reason. Um, he didn't elaborate on why, but um, he said, Mike, you said you've done Mike proud. He said he's, he, he's a top bloke. He said one of the best captains I've ever played for. Um, and um, he said, when I first saw him play, he said I was amazed at how he managed to get balls from, from the offside to the leg side, how he managed to do it. He said, he said I was just amazed by that. He also told me an interesting story about Mike. He said, when I was about uh, 16, he said, at school, he said, I realized my eyesight was going. He said, I couldn't see what the teacher was writing on the blackboard. And he said, so at the suggestion of my uncle Algie, he spelt his name out for for me, A-L-G-I-G-Y, he said, um, Albert Spate, he said he, 
he, he were a good fast bowler for in, in, in club cricket. He said, couldn't bat for Toffee, but <laughs> he said, um, uh, he suggested I write to Mike, who, who, who played in glasses. And um, he said, I wrote to, I, I did write to Mike. He said, and I got a very nice letter back from him a couple of weeks later, a couple of, you know, a few days later, um, saying it's fine to play in glasses, but you need to, you need to make sure you have shatterproof lenses. And he said, I did that. And he said, I played in glasses right until 1968 when I went over to contact lenses. But Mike always played in Mike never went over to contact lenses. In When he got his, he got a test recall in 1972, quite unexpectedly. But then he said, I was thinking about changing to contact lenses then, but I decided against it. I'd played in glasses all the while. And, you know, I, I didn't really want to risk changing. And he played against the touring Australians in three tests in 1972 after having played his last test for England previously in 65, I think, against the, against the uh, no, 66. It would have been against the touring West Indies when, when they got beaten by an innings in the first test and he got dropped as captain. Well, let, let, could... yeah, let's hear what Dennis Amos thought of Mike as a player. What were Mike's qualities as a player? Uh, he was a, a top batter, 180, I well remember. I mean, he played lots, lots of fantastic innings. And um, he's 180, I think it was at, at Stroud on a turner against Gloucester. Uh, um, Mortimer Allen, Sam Cook was just unbelievable. He was just a great player of spin bowling and uh, and could play on under any any pressures, any circumstances. Like that that time at Stroud when we were we were going to lose the match because it was turning square. So um, yeah, a top player. Did you learn a lot from him batting with him? Yes, yeah. I mean, I tried I tried some of the things that that, that he did, and once it would tip, Fred Tipmus was bowling at Lords, and he kept he kept turning it off off the face of the bat round round for one just to keep the score moving. I thought, well, I'll try that, and I got a leading edge caught and bowled Tipmus. So uh, uh, some of the things that he did that we that I tried to copy him di- didn't work. They worked for him though, but he was much better at uh, at uh, doing that. MJK first went on tour for England to the West Indies in 1959-60. He then served as the England vice-captain on their tour of India, Pakistan and Ceylon in 1961-62. So, Mike, when did Mike first captain England? He captained the side to East Africa in 63. Um, end of 63, but his first real captaincy of a test side was at the beginning of 64 when he took a side to India for an eight-week tour in January and February 1964. That must have been a challenging uh, place to go to in those days. It was very challenging, according to Mike. Um, He said the hygiene, food hygiene was was very poor. he said the main problem was trying to get 11 fit players to turn out. And he said in, in, on one particular occasion, we had three players in, in Beach Candy Hospital in uh, Mumbai, or Bombay then, um, Edrich and uh, a couple of others. Um, they were all suffering from dysentery, I think, food poisoning. 
And Mickey Stewart fell ill as well. Mickey Stewart um, offered to play um, even when he shouldn't have done because at the time they were so short. They were talking about putting Henry Blofeld in the team. And Mickey Stewart said, well, he said, I'm not well. He said, but 25% of me is better than 100% of Henry, so I'll play. But it didn't work out very well because um, on the first day when they were fielding, Mickey Stewart told me, he said, I dived for a catch. He said, landed on my stomach, didn't get the catch and brought up my lunch. <laughs> so he said, that finished me for the, for the game. So he then finished up joining the others in hospital. So they had four men in hospital in the end, four of the players. And uh, I mean, he had to fly home. Uh, Mickey Stewart, he was so ill. When, once he'd, he had to spend some time recovering there first and he flew home. And they flew out Cowdery and Parfit. Barrington had also broken a finger or, or, or his wrist or something. And he, he had to return home as well. And they sent out Cowdery and Parfit to, to replace them. Both of whom did pretty well. But it, it, was, a, it was a dull series. All five of the test matches against India in 1964 were drawn. But and it was next, a time where players didn't always tour the subcontinent, didn't they? Um, well, they, they, they went, the best players gave it a miss, to be honest. They didn't fancy it. Um, um, it was a weak side, a weak, fairly weak side that, um, that went out there. I mean, some of the commentators thought it wasn't going to work very well with um, Dexter under Mike, um, especially when Dexter had captain Mike on the previous tour to India. And uh, um, but it worked perfectly. In fact, Tom Cartwright said, um, "We we all we got a real surprise about what a nice chap Ted was." Um, he uh, he said he he asked me and John Mortimer um, if he could come to dinner with us on the first evening. He said, "Do you mind if I join you for dinner?" And he said he was. He was a terrific team man, and Mike said that as well. And so was Peter Parfit. Peter Parfit's got a um, Edward Dexter. He calls him Edward Dexter. He's got a terrific regard for Dexter as Parfit. But uh, no, he was. He's a good team man. I mean, everybody. Um, Tom Cartwright said um, he wasn't a bit. He said uh, he, he wasn't a bit posh. He said. <laughs> He was. We'd all thought he was going to be, but he was just one of the lads, and he was terrific. Well, England yeah. won the series one nil, and that yeah. led Mike to then take the England team to Australia the following winter, nineteen sixty-five, sixty-six. He did, yeah. But just let me tell you a little anecdote about Mike. They won the first test in South Africa by an innings, mainly thanks to Allen and Tip, David Allen and Fred Tipmus. Who both who, who got one of them got five wickets in the first innings. I think Allen got five wickets in the first innings. Titmus got five in the second, and the, the the remaining four tests were drawn. In the second test, apparently Gubby Allen turned up to watch, and at one point, um, England were fielding and um, they weren't making much headway. And Gubby Allen sent out a message, the drinks interval to Mike. Why don't you change the bowling? According to Bob Barber, Mike took a pen off the waiter and wrote on the message, why don't you get stuffed, and sent it back to Gubby Allen. Um, 
I've asked Mike about this. Mike says he can't remember, but uh, I think he's been a bit coy about it, to be honest. But Bob Barber said he's prepared to swear under oath that happened. So, Because <laughs> Gubby liked to manage things even when he wasn't a player, you know. He liked to... <laughs> he liked to have his say. But it's like next winter they did go to Australia and yeah, had next a successful they tour. Went, they went to Australia and they they again won, I think they won the the either the second or third test by an innings and um and then they lost the third, I think it was, in Adelaide. No, the fourth. They won the third test by an innings and lost the fourth in Adelaide by by an innings to Australia. And um, the last test was drawn. So the, it was a one-all series. Mike was furious about that because he felt that they deserved to win the series. They played better. They should have won the second test as well, I think. And Mike was even a popular captain with the Australians in Australia. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mike was very – Mike was popular with everybody. I mean, David Frith said to me, um that um he said he said about mike he said to 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 ne to have never made any enemies in a divisive game like cricket is quite an achievement <laughs> because it is a divisive game i mean and a lot you get a lot of rivalries a lot of players falling out with each other mike never had an enemy he was um he comes back then from Australia, one-one. We'd be we'd be pleased with a one-one series now down under. We would, and yet yeah. one home test later, he was dropped from the side. You mentioned we lost to the West Indies by an innings in the first test of nineteen sixty-six. That must have hit Mike hard when he was dropped as captain and as a player. Well, it did hit him hard, I think. But Mike, being the sort of chap he is. He's very philosophical. And I said, weren't you bitter about only getting, you know, one game um, against them um, being dropped after one game? And he said, he said, well, he said, you know, a captain, it's all right being captain, but you've got to get runs. He said, and I had a bad game. And he he didn't make any excuses. He, he didn't whinge about it. it, but he must have been disappointed. I know his players were more disappointed than he was. I mean, this is what John Edrich says in his in, in his, um, his his autobiography, um, it runs in the family. Mike had been considered good enough to skipper a team that very nearly brought the, back the ashes. He had been widely acclaimed for the enterprising cricket his team had produced, yet just this one test and a few months later he was thrown out. Surely he should have been given the captaincy for all five tests against the West Indies. That is the way to breed confidence. How can a skipper feel completely in command when everyone knows he's only been appointed for part of a series? And he says, he goes on to say, the paradox of it all was that Mike was liked and respected by his players. That is why the Tour of Australia under him was such a happy one. He knew the game inside out. And he set a great example by his close catching. If there was any fun off the field, he was in the middle of it. He possessed this casual, unflapping, unflappable way. He didn't make mope if he made a low score. He would just flop down on the dressing room bench seat, remove his boots, put on his sandals, and exclaim with a grin, that wasn't very good, was it? And then forget all about it. 
He accepted that his players knew something of the game. If you didn't get runs, he knew you felt bad enough about it without any strictures from him. Some skippers would order extra practice and lay down the law if the game goes wrong, but not Mike. He treated every day as a new day, every match as a fresh challenge. He had no time for recriminations, but he would certainly speak his mind if he thought anyone wasn't pulling his weight. Mike's a perfect gentleman. He's, um, he's very mild-mannered. He's very calm, but he's no shrinking violet. And um, he, um, he, could be, he could be quite firm if required. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you another story about quickly um fred rumsey when he first played for mike um was opening the bowling against new zealand i think this was in the this would have been in 65 i think it was when south africa came back and beat england 1-0 in um in england and it was a three test series and they then had a three test series against uh against New Zealand and um, Fred Rumsey was playing in that and Mike said and partnering Fred Truman and Mike said to Fred at the start of the New Zealand innings which end do you want and Fred Rumsey said shouldn't you shouldn't you be asking Fred that shouldn't you be giving Fred the choice of ends you know Fred was the senior bowler and uh, Mike said are you the England captain <laughs> Fred said I was I was taken aback. He said, no, no, sorry, Skipper. And he said, okay, so which end do you want? And uh, he gave, I mean, that's probably Mike's psychology, thinking, you know, it would it would motivate Fred to be given the choice of ends. And um, <laughs> he, he's been very helpful as well. Fred Rumsey, he's quite a character as well. He's uh, got a few anecdotes up his sleeve. Well, Warwickshire won the, the Gillette Cup under Mike's leadership in 1966, but at the end of the 1967 season, he, he actually retired full-time cricket. Yeah, that's right. I think he felt he'd got a, he'd got a growing family. It was time to, um, to do something else. He was approached by Derek Robbins, uh, a self-made entrepreneur who was actually chairman of Coventry City Football Club, the man responsible for bringing Jimmy Hill to Coventry. He had a building firm. Um, he'd started out, like a lot of famous entrepreneurs, with a cement mixer in a field. And um, he, he became a, quite a successful entrepreneur. Um, and he wanted, he wanted Mike to work for him. He was, he was building squash courts, which, was, which were in vogue at the time. And he wanted Mike to work for him as a salesman, really, but mainly for Mike's ambassadorial qualities because of who he was. And, um, I mean, Mike is not really a salesman. Um, and uh, But he worked for him for a couple of years. But at the end of it, he, um, I think he, Robbins wanted him to uh, tour Australia again. He wanted him to become a test selector. And Mike... Mike didn't want to do that. He said, I'd never get home. And in the end, they slightly, I mean, Mike's not put it this way, but they fell out a bit, really. And uh, um, Derek Robbins had his own cricket team as well, and he wanted Mike to play for him, you know, a lot of the time. And um, anyway, they um, they parted company at the end of, uh, of, of 1969, it would have been. 
And then Mike went back to Alan Smith. Alan told me this, and he said, um, would you mind if I came back? <laughs> and Alan said, no, not at <laughs> all. He said, I'd be delighted. And uh, so he came back, and he 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 he, uh, he played for for Warwickshire again from 1970 to 1975, another six seasons. And in 1972, um, they won the championship. Yeah, yeah, they won the championship. Uh, they they had won, the, as you say, they won the Gillette Cup in 66. Um, they'd actually got to the final in 64. I think it was the, either the first or second year. Um, and uh, they got beaten in the final um, by by Sussex, I think. Um, yeah, Ian Thompson skittled them. The ball was swinging all over the place, apparently. And Mike opted to bat. On a on a on a damp Lord's morning, and they were bowled out quite cheaply, and I think um, Sussex knocked them off for for only one or two wickets. Um, so they they learnt the lesson from that that um, batting first at Lord's is not uh, not always a good thing, according to according to John Jameson. Who spent some time working at Lords, and uh, he said the ball can swing around quite alarmingly there early in the morning sometimes. Mike was absolutely fearless at short leg, even that even after he, he had his wrist broken playing against Yorkshire, and missed about six matches because of it. But um, according to David Brown, he said um, David told me he said he. He took some amazing catches, and he used to stand so close. The other thing about uh, that is that... Um, no helmets, no shin guards. No helmets, no, no, no. And um, I asked Mike about um, fielding there, and he said he said there were certain players who, who wouldn't field there for me. He said, if you don't fancy it, he said, you're never going to catch anything anyway. He said, you won't, you'll flinch. And you won't catch anything. And he said, he said also there were one or two players in the Warwickshire side who, who who weren't too keen to feel there. So I never asked them. He said you've got to have the right physique and the right athleticism, as well as the right sort of um, guts to feel there. And there are certain fielders who were very good close to the wicket. Parfit was one of them, and. Um, um, Bob Barber was another. Bob Barber and Parfit were very good, close to the wicket fielders. So Mike's one of uh, a select few cricketers who've got more than 500 first-class catches. Is he? Yeah. Um, Mickey Stewart was a very good close to the wicket fielder as well. I think he must be up there, well up there, if not ahead of Mike. Because um, he played for many seasons as well, Mickey did. You mentioned earlier 1972 was Mike's uh, final appearances for England against Australia. We played th the first three tests mm -hmm. um, where he played against Dennis Lilly and Rodney Marsh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. He also featured in Massey's match at Lords when Bob Massey got 16 wickets. He did, he did. And in fact, um, I, I have a friend who was who saw that game um, and was actually at Lords that day. And um, he said that Mike was the only batsman who actually showed any any ability against Massey that day. He said he was in for about nearly two hours. He only got 30, but um, he was the only one who, who seemed to be able to play Massey. But, I mean, Massey skittled them. And, but again, 
you know, the ball was swinging around corners, according to to players. And that was quite exceptional because Massey never did a lot after that, before or, or after. You know, and it was quite exceptional to get that many wickets. And Mike finished with 50 tests, 25 of those as captain. Mm-hmm. Um 2,278 runs at an average of 31. How would you and how did Mike sum up his test career? Um, I think, to be fair, you can't class Mike as a, as a top-ranked test batsman um, with an average of that size. Um, he was, to some extent, suspect against real pace. I mean, you could say that about a lot of batsmen, but he particularly was. Whether this, he, he doesn't think it was anything to do with his eyesight. He's, he's, he's adamant that it wasn't that. Um, but there's no doubt that, you know, real fast bowlers like Wes Hall, Fred Truman and Statham, they, they got him out on a lot of occasions early on. It's funny because Mike either seemed to get a good score or a low score. He never got sort of many in between. He had a he had a couple of test centuries, I think, and he had a several scores in the nineties. But he also had a number of scores under ten. He was he was definitely suspect early on to quick bowling. Um, why I'm not sure, but I mean, but if you look at his county record, his county batting average is 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 about thirty nine, I think. Um, more importantly, county. more importantly, you've worked alongside Mike with this book. Uh, mm. What did you find him? Like as a person, oh, I mean, he's he's an absolute gentleman. He's kind. He's generous. He's perfect manners. Um, he's he's incredibly modest as a person. And um, when I told him what Boycott had said about him, he said, "Oh, that's a bit over the top, isn't it?" <laughs> he, he he's um, he's an absolute prince as a person. I think. Uh, um, Everybody, everybody likes Mike. I mean, I'll tell you what, uh, this is what Alan Smith says about him. Uh, who, who, he said, purely as a batsman or, and also as a close to the wicket fielder, he's earned the respect, admiration and gratitude of spectators around the world. But more importantly, wherever he has been, whomsoever he has met, he has instantly made friends. No player in the last 25 years has been more universally popular. Hard-bitten professionals have been prepared to walk over a cliff if he so decreed as captain. And that's true. I mean, Mike uh, was universally liked. And he's, he's, he's very calm. He's, he's a little bit eccentric. Um, he's got... <laughs> Alan Smith told me another anecdote about Mike, about his absent-mindedness. He said, um, "He said, you know, we we were sitting in this box one day, Warwickshire were batting. They said, and Mike was writing all these calculations down on a piece of paper, and he said um, we all we all thought he was trying to work out, you know, when it was best for a declaration. He said, and then suddenly Mike said." Do you realise, he said, it's cheaper to fly to Glasgow rather than go by train. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's hear what Dennis Amos uh, thought of Mike as a person. 
Oh, he's a top guy. Everybody likes him. Very easy and uh, relaxed, very relaxed person. Uh, very easy to talk to. And there's um, always, you know, got a, got a good view on things. Really good company. We all liked him. It wasn't difficult to follow MJK. It was very easy to follow him. And, uh, you know, he, he was a sort of self-motivator and of players. And, uh, um, yeah, we all, we all liked him very much. Still comes to the matches now. Nearly son brings brings him to games, and so does uh, Barbara, his daughter. And he, and he's still interested in the club. He loves the club, um, and um, you know he would have been Mister Mister Cricket at Warwickshire at, uh, at uh, one stage, and probably probably you know to a lesser extent now. Now he's uh, a lot older, but um, you know, good man, good club man. And uh, one easy to follow. Hi, it's Stephen here. I would like to take this opportunity to thank our listeners from all around the world for listening to the Paddock and the Pavilion during the past 12 months and wish you all a Merry Christmas and a happy and peaceful New Year. Please do keep listening. I would love to hear from you around the world, so please drop me a line. Let me know what you like about the show. The Paddock and the Pavilion is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network and is available on Apple Podcasts, Google and Spotify. Dennis also paid tribute to you, Mike, for oh, did he? <laughs> asking him to give his thoughts, opinions about Mike for the book. And on that subject, we're now going to hear from Dennis. And this is what he had to say. Yeah, no, I was uh, delighted to be to, to to contribute something to Mike that uh, I played with him. I knew him. We we we, uh, we we didn't play in the same England side together, and didn't uh, tour together. But um, yeah, I, I just uh, it was just uh, great to to uh, uh, to uh, contribute to to someone who's been Mister uh, um, Warwickshire and uh, uh, played a big part in my life as as captain and as my chairman. Terrific chairman, really backed me on everything I did. Um, so uh, we were we were a good duo in, in those days, and we had a very successful time. And, and things went for us in that, especially in that 1994 season. It was just uh, it was just terrific, and I couldn't have asked for, for a better bloke to be to be chairman and, and support me as chief exec. How much of a joy was it, though, Mike, for you to do the book about Mike? Oh, it was terrific. I mean, not only the chance to have um, in-depth discussions with Mike, but also the chance to meet so many famous ex-cricketers as well. Um, and I have to say, I was warmly received by all of them. Um, there were one or two who didn't want to participate. I won't mention them because, um, um, you know, they prefer to remain anonymous but by and large there was only two or three that um that didn't want to participate but that is nothing to do with mike i don't think it was to do with other reasons either they'd become disaffected by cricket or or um you know it was it was part of a history that they didn't want to you know re, 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 resuscitate but um um but no, I, 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 
I found it a, a real thrill to have, and um, I say I'm still in contact with some of these people. I was talking to Peter Parfit only last week. I was talking to uh, Jim Stewart this week. Jim's not been very well lately, actually. Um, he had a fall. He, he had a fall a few weeks ago. He actually fell out of bed. And I said, how did you manage? He lost his wife about many years ago, uh, Jim did, probably 20 years ago. But um, he lives on his own in in, in Henley and Arden, not that far from uh, Mike, and they see each other occasionally. But he, um, I mean, Jim was a very good rugby player in his day. He, he played for Coventry in the 1950s when Coventry was one of the best rugby teams in England. And he was very unlucky, actually, because he, he almost won a Welsh cap. Jim was born in Llanethley, and um, he, he, he almost won a Welsh cap. And But for injury, he probably would have got a, he got injured in the trial, I think, and he would have won a Welsh cap. And he was also 12th man for England at cricket. So he, he, he very nearly became a double international. And Like uh, Mike. Yeah, like Mike. Yeah, I mean, Mike is the only living double international. And... Um, he told, I said, how did you manage to fall out of bed? He said, well, he said, I was dreaming about scoring a try in rugby. I mean, this is a guy of 89, you know, dreaming, still dreaming about scoring. He said, I dived for the corner. And he said, I dived out of bed. And I really injured my hip and my side and I cut my hand. I'm not sure how I did that, but I cut my hand. He said, but the worst of it was, he said, the, he said, the bloody referee disallowed the try. He said, I'd got my foot in touch. <laughs> You'll have to tell Mike this story. <laughs> yeah, Mike. <laughs> he said. He said when you tell Mike Mike Smith that he said he'll wet himself. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, where can we get the book from? I've read well, it. and I've really enjoyed the the yeah, journey, good. Mike's cricketing uh, journey. Yeah. Well, if you want a signed copy, a copy signed by Mike, if you. Uh, Email me on mike at speaklanguages.co.uk and send me your address. I can I can send you a copy via through the post. Mike at speaklanguages.co.uk. I'll put that on the on the podcast bio. It's also available on Amazon and other bookshops. It is. It's available at Amazon, but that wouldn't be a signed copy. In fact. The price of the book is £25, and that's the price for a signed copy, but you can probably get it on Amazon cheaper than that now. Um, but but it's selling pretty well. I mean, there were a 1,000 copies produced, and I think at least 500 have sold already, and I've got um, quite a few talks to give, more talks to give on it. I'm giving one to the um, the London branch of the Cricket Society in January. And also one to the Wombwell Cricket Lovers Society, which is in Yorkshire near Barnsley. And um, I think that's the oldest, one of the oldest cricket societies in the country. And they get a lot of, a lot of good guest speakers there. Um, well, I hope Peter, that goes well. Uh, yeah, no, thank you. Thank you very much for being on the, the paddock and the pavilion. I'd like to wish you a, a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Uh, a belated a belated 80th birthday uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, wishes to you mm -hmm. and um i uh, hope they keep selling those books and uh, it won't be long before the cricket season will be starting again no that's right and i'm looking forward to that as well yeah not as a player i i, I stopped playing 5 years ago when my legs wouldn't uh, 
wouldn't uh, stand up to three hours fielding anymore. <laughs> That's always the, the the problem at the end, fielding. And yeah. um, send my regards to Mike, and hopefully, when I get the podcast edited, I'll be you'll you'll be able to send him a copy of of our. That'd chat. be great. You know, he'd, he'd like that. Yeah, he'd like that. Okay, thank you very much, Stephen. Yeah, thank you. I've enjoyed it. Podcast Network.